asked Pastor Lyle about this in terms of a children's sermon if we had ever played Who Am I? here at Christ Church Lutheran. He wasn't sure, and of course I wasn't sure either. But I thought it might be one thing that we could do that ties in with the gospel this morning. We used to play this game back when we were riding in our 55 Ford station wagon, and it was a long trip, and the folks didn't want us to fight, and they didn't want us to read. And so we would play something that was called Names the Same, and we would pick somebody famous and give little clues. And the first clues were real general, and then the clues became more and more specific to try to figure out who is this person? Who am I? Which is what Jesus was asking in today's gospel reading. So let's let's start out and see if we can have any any idea for playing who am I. The first clue is a real general clue. It's somebody who's here at Christ Church Lutheran this morning, and he's just about uh, my age. I think he's a little bit younger than I am. Can you guess who that might be? Pastor Tom. That's a pretty broad clue, isn't it? Okay. Let's have another one. Um, this man is also an ordained pastor. Pastor Tom. Pastor, pastor, Tom. pastor Tom. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Let's try another one. Um, this is a woman who is here this morning, and um, she does a lot of things here at Christ Church Lutheran. Lois Ann. Is that a good clue? Not a very good clue, is it? Here, this, this may be helpful to you. Here's another clue. This woman sometimes sounds like she's from New York. Lois Ann? Can you guess? Lois Ann. Let's try again. This woman is the president of the church council and of the congregation here at Christ Church. Lois Ann. Who is that? Lois Ann. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we played a little bit of an easy game of who am I or names the same. And in today's gospel lesson, the disciples were playing, who am I, because Jesus had asked them, who do people say that I am? We'll hear more about that shortly. But for right now, let's have a word of prayer together. Dear Jesus, we know who you are because of what you have done for us and what you have shown us. We are grateful that you, our Messiah and Christ, our anointed one, come to us in the word and in the blessed sacrament. Come to us, abide with us, stay with us, and be in our hearts now and always. Amen. So since we're playing Who Am I, I figure even though I've been here a couple times, I'd better say, who am I? Who's this guy? Uh, my name is Jim Freeling. It's nice for me to be back here at Christ Church Lutheran. I'm just so pleased to be with you under uh, certainly different circumstances than I was with you the last time. That's, that's for sure. But then so many things are so different, aren't they? Um, I flew in from uh, Nebraska on Friday. My uh, plane had a mechanical, so instead of going through Denver, I went through Chicago, which is not the most direct route. But I got here and uh, things things proceeded in, in a pretty good fashion. So I'm, I'm just so glad to be with you once again. Uh, I am, of course, ordained ELCA clergy, but for most of my life I functioned as a psychologist. I'm still licensed as a psychologist in Nebraska and Arizona. Much of my work has been with aging populations and also with people who have developmental disabilities. 
A lot of my work has been with Mosaic, which is an ELCA-related agency that does supports for people with disabilities, operating, I think, in 15 or 16 states now. So it's one of the serving arms of our church together. So again, wonderful to be with you, wonderful to share this time with you. May grace and peace be with us, the grace and peace from the source of all being and from the Son, who in and through the Holy Spirit calls us to take up our cross and follow. Today's gospel, as it said in our bulletin, today's gospel marks a turning point in our narrative with all of what is following, what we'll hear the rest of the church here being called the way of the cross. Jesus has just healed a blind man in Bethsaida. And as they leave Bethsaida, which happens to be the hometown of the disciple Philip, they proceed north and east, walking around the upper shore of the Sea of Galilee, and eventually they cross the upper Jordan River. Literally, they are going up, up in elevation towards Mount Hermon, up north, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. It's probably far more than a 15-mile walk, so there's plenty of opportunity for conversation as they're walking along the way. And along the way, then, Jesus asks his disciples rather abruptly, so it seems, who do people say that I am? And the disciples waffle a little bit at first, saying, some people say that you are John the Baptist, which they must have read on Facebook because John the Baptist had been beheaded by this time. Others say, well, you're Elijah. And still others say that Jesus is one of the other prophets. Then Jesus asks them, but, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, never one to be overly reflective or deliberative, answers Jesus immediately, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And by the way, we have a designated observance on January 18th when the church can take note of what is called the Confession of Peter. The fact that Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. A week later, on January 25th, we have the opportunity to observe the conversion of St. Paul. And in the week in between, oftentimes it is a week of prayer for Christian unity. So Simon P Peter answers almost as abruptly as Jesus has asked and says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And Mark gives us no further elaboration, unlike what we hear from Matthew. Jesus simply says, okay, don't tell anybody about it. It's like, well, what's that about? Well, we've run across it before, actually, if we think back in the Gospel of Mark, even in that first chapter of Mark's Gospel, Demons are being cast out by Jesus, and they are not allowed by Jesus to speak because they knew him, Mark says. So this idea is oftentimes called the messianic secret, and you've probably heard it before this year as we've been reading through the Gospel of, of Mark. And Mark becomes thereby the occasion for a lot of work from a lot of commentators, one general consensus seems to be, why do we have to keep this secret? That maybe Jesus wants his full identity to be undercover, so to speak, because 
God's idea of being the Messiah and the Christ is vastly different from popular concepts of what the Messiah was supposed to be at the time. Indeed, right after Peter's confession, right after Peter's statement, Jesus begins to teach them what being the Messiah is going to entail. It's not like this train is bound for glory, at least not right away. It's probably nothing like the disciples had been hoping for. Rather, Mark says, he began to teach them. Remember, this is a turning point in today's gospel. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected, be killed, and after three days rise again. And Mark tells us that Jesus said all this quite openly to the disciples. But Peter, never one to be overly reflective or deliberative, takes Jesus aside. And Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. Again, Mark doesn't tell us what Peter had to say. But Mark does make a point of saying that Jesus turned and looked at the rest of his disciples. And then Jesus rebuked Peter sharply, saying, Get behind me, Satan. Why such a stunningly sharp rebuke? Maybe it's because Peter might have been putting into words the very issues, the very struggles with which Jesus was himself contending at this time. We could say that maybe Jesus was being revisited by those same temptations that he had in the wilderness when he started his ministry, the temptations to forsake the path of service and suffering and choose instead the path of ease and power. So after rebuking Peter so sharply, Jesus calls the crowd to join the disciples. And the crowd is something of a character in and of itself in the Gospel of Mark. It's almost maybe a bit like the chorus in a Greek tragedy. And Mark doesn't tell us where the crowd came from, but they have probably been following Jesus all along the way as they walked up north. And Jesus tells the disciples and the crowd, here's what coming after me entails. Here's what following Jesus means. And by the way, that infinitive for to follow can also be translated as to imitate. That's a whole other sermon, isn't it? So anyone who wants to follow Jesus will have to deny themselves, to deny, to disclaim, to disown, to renounce, to open up the soul that wants to curve in on itself. Remember that old translation from the old King James Version, what will it profit if we gain the whole world and lose our soul? If you want to follow Jesus, you'll have to renounce yourself and take up your cross. What? Now things are getting serious with the disciples in the crowd. This taking up your cross would not have been a figure of speech for the disciples in the crowd. They had undoubtedly witnessed someone taking up their cross, and they knew what was going to happen to that person thereafter. This taking up of your cross was not a figure of speech for them and did not refer to the kinds of trials and misfortunes 
that come to any and all of us in the course of our daily living. You know that expression, well, that's my cross to bear. No, that's not what we're talking about. Here, the expression, taking up your cross, refers to all that it will cost us to be followers of Christ. So that may sound like the bad news, but here's the good news. Those who renounce themselves for the sake of the highest and most ultimate meaning, for the sake of the gospel, those people who renounce their lives will save their lives. And that word to save can also be translated as to safeguard, to keep in health, or to heal. Because what will it profit us if we gain the whole world? lose our own souls. This is not a call from Jesus to self-destruction, to self-abnegation, or to some type of enmeshed codependency with all of the problems of the world. Rather, it is a call to self-fulfillment, to self-expansion, a call into a life of higher purpose. Kelly McGonigal is a brilliant researcher here in the Bay Area. She researches in health psychology. And one of her quotes is, chasing meaning is better for you than trying to avoid discomfort. Or, as one of our Lutheran theologians here in America has written, now that we know that death doesn't win, there is more to do with our lives than preserve them. So, Part two of every sermon, so what? How then shall we live? What then shall we do? Now, before we talk about doing, I want to talk just a little bit about being. There is a time for both and a need for both, doing and being. I got an email recently from Richard Rohr, my favorite living Franciscan, his Center for Action and Contemplation, and that email said, In today's religious, environmental, and political climate, our compassionate engagement is urgent and vital. When you experience the reality of your oneness with God, others, and creation, actions of justice and healing will naturally follow. If you're working to create a more whole world, contemplation will give your actions nonviolent loving power for the long haul. So we need both doing and being, action and contemplation. But that's a whole other sermon too, and maybe a whole other sermon series. We've had a good deal of very direct, specific, uncomfortably pointed admonitions in our epistle lessons these last Sundays, haven't we, as we've heard from the Ephesians and the letter of James this morning. As we listened to that epistle reading, all of us probably should have winced just a little bit about what he had to say about the tongue. But James reminds us towards the very beginning of his letter, be ye doers, be ye, that's all of you, that's plural, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. One historic commentator gets poetic about this doing the word, and this commentator writes, the great servants 
whom humanity honors are those who have forgotten themselves into immortality. How many millions of unknown and unsung people have found life, the largest, richest life, by losing it. They have been brought out of grief to find abundant life in service. Out of the fatal boredom of self-enclosure, they have found adventures among the needful, the cast out, and the sorrowing. The result is that lives that had been pitifully smashed up so that there was an air of death about them, those lives have been born again in an outpouring of love. It's a beautiful poetic quote. What then shall our actions be as we take up the cross and are doers of the word? Collectively, together, as a congregation, you will find out about that moving forward as you retain what has served you well and as you release with gratitude. Release with gratitude that which no longer serves you and which is no longer life-giving. You will discern this together. This will be an ongoing process. And if there are relatively few of us in on the process, and we would prefer to be many instead of few, I always think of the words of Margaret Mead when she said, never doubt that a small number of highly committed individuals can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. What shall our actions be? Collectively, together, you will continue to discern that. Individually, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, isn't it, when you listen to the news? It's easy to feel overwhelmed and to deceive ourselves into thinking that whatever one individual can do is not meaningful. And so I like to recall those words of Mother Teresa, which I probably will repeat to you on more than one occasion if we get to be together. Mother Teresa said this. She said, small things with great love. It is not how much we do, but how much love we put in the doing. And it is not how much we give, but how much love we put in the giving. To God, there is nothing small. The moment we give it to God, it becomes infinite. One of my favorite illustrations of small things with great love comes from my work with Mosaic as we developed a program in Tanzania supporting mostly kids, young people with significant disabilities. About four years ago, one of the staff came back to the United States from Tanzania. He was a Tanzanian working in the program. His name was Godson, and he came back to talk to us. And he was telling us that the vast majority of the kids who came into the program were suffering with enteric parasites, so that even what little they had to eat wasn't really being fully beneficial to them. He told us about a medication that the children had been given in this program, and it had been amazingly effective, and that the kids in the programs were now testing as parasite-free. Do you know how much the medication cost each year for each child? A dollar forty-seven cents.
small things with great love. Taking up your cross, following Jesus, losing your life so that you can find it. So with all this talk about doing and good works, what would Martin Luther have to say? Well, this one may surprise you. It surprised me when I read it. The word was from a sermon in 1526, and Luther was preaching on the text, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and thy neighbor as thyself. And Luther said concerning this text, There you have the good works described altogether. These we should practice, practice towards one another, as our Heavenly Father has done towards us and is still doing unceasingly. Luther says, you have often heard that we need no works to please God, but we need them for our neighbor. We cannot make God any more powerful or richer through our works, but we can make our neighbor stronger and richer by them. Our neighbors need our works, and our works should be directed towards our neighbors and not to God. And then Luther says, you have heard this so often, and it is still ringing in your ears. Would to God that it would go into your hands and be expressed in works. Then Luther says, faith is due to God alone. Faith receives divine works, which God alone can do. And these works of God, we can receive alone through faith. Then we should be busy for our neighbor's sake and direct our works towards them that our works may serve them. And Luther concludes, my faith I must bring inwardly and upwards to God, but my works must do outwardly and downwards to my neighbor. Would to God that it would go into your hands and be expressed in works. And yes, this is God's work, our hands, Sunday. Take up your cross, all that it costs to be a follower of Christ, an imitator of Christ. Lose your life so you can find it. Teresa of Avila puts this well. She was a renewer of the church, and her commemoration falls on December 14th, along with the commemoration of her colleague and renewer, St. John of the Cross. Uh, Teresa of Avila was no great fan of Martin Luther's, of course, and she is supposed to have prayed daily that God would give light to the Lutherans. Well, that's okay, because I pray daily that God will give light to the Lutherans. But here's what she had to say about being a follower of Christ. She said, Christ has no body now on earth but yours. No hands but yours. No feet but yours. Yours are the eyes with which Christ's compassion is to look out to the world. Yours are the feet with which Christ is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which Christ is to bless all people now. 